2: Welcome
1: to the Arsenal Vision post-match
2: podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is mean Lean from arsenalvision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim... We'll be discussing the uh, 1-1 draw away to PSG in the Champions League. Uh, We were very lucky to come away with a draw in the end. I think we lacked a world-class striker. If we had someone like Cavani, it could have been all very... mm, Maybe not. But in all seriousness, we were very lucky to come away with with a draw. Thanks to some excellent goalkeeping by Ospina. Also, some awful finishing from Cavani. So thank you, Cavani, for that. Ever since the international break, we've looked a bit shaky at the back. Yeah, the game against Southampton and now this game against PSG, we haven't we haven't looked ourselves. Uh, before the break, I thought we looked a lot better. Nil-nil draw at Leicester and um, and our victory at Watford, we thought we were much better defensively. So we have to get back to that as soon as possible. I don't know what the problem's been. I'm sure you hear plenty more about those problems in the podcast. So listen to that, enjoy that. Oh, before I before I disappear, don't forget to follow the uh, Twitter account it's Arsenal v Podcast. Uh, On Twitter, obviously. Because lots of things that will be spoken about in the podcast uh, will be in a like section. So get following on that and take a look at some interesting articles and stuff. So yeah, feast on that and enjoy the podcast back after Whole City.
1: Arsenal accidentally turn in League Cup lineup for the Champions League but survive with a 1-1 draw. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. It is remarkable. We've had some flaps over the years. We've had some errors, some mistakes, some egg on our face, but perhaps none bigger than accidentally turning in the League Cup lineup for a Champions League night. And yet the players, they they gritted their teeth, they bared down, they showed heart, determination. It is, after all, a sport that is purely about passion. Uh, and that is spelled P A S H U N. And our passion shined through in the end and got us the point we so richly did not deserve. Uh, I am here with Paul. You can find him on Twitter at pausing my pants. Hello, pause. Very droll
3: today. Very droll.
1: Droll indeed. Uh, isn't isn't that a type of fruit? D R O L. Yes. Oh, that's yes, dull. Anyway, uh, I am also here with the man from France, from France. Uh, on parle Francais? Oui? Peut-être? Non? Petit peu? Tim? Tim, you can find him on Twitter. It's still oh, for the
3: love of God, Hello, stop. Tim.
1: <laughs> Hello. Uh, bon nuit. Bonne nuit à toi aussi. Oh, Bienvenue. Jesus. C'est très bien. Ça va? Ça va bien. Ah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Um, we just lost our french listeners um thankfully (laughs) we didn't have any um all right so there's so much to talk about uh and i know that paul has watched it twice i've watched it once in a little more than a half which is all i really i'll take that i'll I'll take take that um and i have some thoughts as you might have expected but let's just start with this really quickly because we are blessed to have tim on the pod tim any quick thoughts on the the trip to paris
4: Uh, Yeah, very nice. Um, Lovely city. Been too long since I've been. Um, Paul did recommend me a a very nice-looking restaurant, which um, was called Roger Frogs. Uh,
3: Roger (laughs) um, La Grenouille. Roger Frogs? Uh, Yeah,
4: yeah. If you're ever in Mexico,
1: there's a Senior Frogs, which I'm sure is equally as nice.
4: I'm I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But... um, did get to the frog's legs and the steak tartare eventually. But yes, lovely trip. Spent um, the last most of the last day in uh, Montmartre, um, kind of just outside of Paris. All, nice little bohemian villagey kind of feel to it. Uh, did the catacombs and all that stuff I didn't have the time to do last time. So, yeah, wonderful trip. Um, surprisingly and- nice, nice stadium as well.
1: And then, just as the trip was going well, out comes the team <laughs> sheet. And what yeah. happened? Did did the frog legs come back? <laughs>
4: um, a little bit, yeah. I, I I couldn't work it out to be honest. A little bit like, um, well, with the Southampton game, I just kind of figured, right, he's tried to pick everyone that wasn't on international duty, but it doesn't look like a team that really stacks up for this game. Um, but I kind of understood why he did that. I didn't really understand the uh, the team selection for this one. Um, I think if you're going to put Alexis up, for, I mean, so having Coquelin and Kazola against a team like PSG, who play 4 and press quite high up the pitch, didn't really make any sense to me. And I think we struggled with that. I think if you're going to play Alexis up front, you've got to, you can only really do that if you've got Walcott next to him. I think that gave our wide players a problem because Chamberlain and Iwobi, because basically our central midfield was going to get overrun. I think that was pretty obvious from the kickoff. And then you've got Chamberlain and Awobi on the flanks and you know that Alexis is going to come out of that number nine spot so one of your wingers is going to have to tuck in. And basically, Chamberlain and Awobi, it looked like they were tasked with being midfielders and forwards all at the same time. And, um, you know, I don't think it's any great surprise that, that they kind of struggled with that for the first half, um, not really knowing what their role was or where they were meant to be. And um, maybe it's just a bit of confirmation bias on my part, but I I totally foresaw these issues when I saw the team sheet. Um, And I I just didn't really understand um, that setup at all, quite frankly. I I kind of understand the Ospina thing because, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of teams do have cup keepers nowadays and I think that Arsenal hasn't given up on the idea that Aspina could be our number one one day. So he wants to keep him at the club, he wants to keep him happy. And this is obviously a concession he's made to do that. I think he's given up on Chesney um, and he just can't find a buyer. And therefore he wants to keep Aspina and he wants to keep him happy. And I, I kind of understand that these are quote-unquote political choices that are very easy for us to criticise. But, you know, the 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 alternative is Aspina goes and then we have to go and try and find someone else which which may not be that easy so
1: well and here's the other thing look i i i i i I didn't know the start start, start, start. the one thing you can say for the most part i mean i know like if you're pep guardiola you get rid of joe hart because he's not great with the ball at his feet but primarily changing the goalkeeper doesn't necessarily impact the way the team sets up and plays the football right i mean it, that's not to say the goalkeeper isn't important and the goalkeeper can't be a distributor, but for the most part, you can still play the way you want, regardless of who you yeah. choose at goalkeeper. The The players you choose in the outfield are really going to affect how you play. So uh, before we turn it over to Paul, of the selections, was there one in particular that you found either most surprising or most disconcerting?
4: Um, I, I found the omission of Granit Xhaka... Um, Surprising, yes. Um, I, I was I was probably equally surprised to see Alexis up front. Um, but I think you could probably explain that away by saying, you know, Giroud. I think there's clearly, um, you know, Arson spoke about it not just being a physical thing when you lose an international final uh, with with your with your national side. Um, and I think we've seen that Giroud is not exactly mentally very tough. To be quite honest with you. And it showed when he came on, a little bit of booing from the fans seemed to really, really upset him. Um, he had, you know, he, he, he had the hump from the second he came on. And I think we've kind of seen why Arson's not playing him um, at the moment. And probably Lucas Perez isn't really quite ready yet. So, you know, that, that one I can kind of make a bit of sense of. I, mm. I couldn't make much sense of, Playing Cocalan and Kazola against a team that sets up like PSG do, that play the way they do, and um, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's a sense that Arsenal's really, really trying to hold back some of the players that, that were at the Euros. Um, I think that's maybe part of it, and obviously Granite Jacker was one of those players. But you know, I kind of thought that we'd spent 35 million pounds on this midfield player. To solve exactly this problem, um, and you know, I know we've we've brought some players through the spine of the team, um, and that's going to take a little bit of transition. But what's kind of worrying is that even having not really inducted the new players other than Mustafi yet, we still look like a team of strangers, and we've yeah. still got to handle that whole induction process. So we don't we look very uncohesive and we we, we're delaying the kind of the transition period to be cohesive yeah Yeah. exactly so right it kind of feels like we're surrendering ourselves to further transition whereas if the team's going to look like a bunch of strangers anyway you might it might as well be because they're new rather than because you're battling with the same old problems yeah um, so there, there may be, there may be. I'm sure there is something more behind it. I don't know how much, you know, Arson uses data to inform his selections. Data that we're perhaps not privy to. Data whether it be on fitness or anything else. Um, but I, I did find the exclusion of, of Granite Jacker the most surprising, certainly.
1: Especially considering that when he played against Watford, we looked like a. At least a better version of ourselves, and it was it was the best Indeed. we played. And then you go back the to the Southampton. Half. Well, yeah, and then you go back to the Southampton match where we didn't really have that same control, and and so we didn't pick him. I thought that was interesting. It's funny. It's a little bit of deja vu because I believe we were on this podcast together this time last year, and I was saying I thought it was the end of Giroud's career because of a dumb red card and the fact that Theo had usurped him, and things weren't going his way at Arsenal, and we'd spend a summer trying to replace him, and here we are. Going to be analyzing a, a similar kind of situation in some respects, but <clears throat> Paul, let's talk lineup for a minute. I mean, I know just from back channel WhatsApp discussions that y- you've moved off this position a little bit, but at the time of the selection, were you concerned that he had he had made some mistakes with with the players he'd picked?
3: Um, so I don't know if I've moved. On. I think my initial reaction was wow uh, to the lineup. Uh, Cause, like, it was, it was wow. It was, it was not what I had been led to expect from uh, our, our previous selection, um, and I didn't like it. And it turned out it wasn't very good. Um, but I mean, Tim kind of laid out the groundwork a little bit of the decision, potential decision making, and unless arson's either a sadist a masochist or a moron he probably had some reasons here's my guess of what they were uh, Giroud isn't match fit physically and maybe a little bit mentally uh, Wenger talked about that certainly a little over a week ago Giroud even said it when explaining why he sucked in his second uh, national team game he said he hadn't played enough yet because the manager had held him as himself back he wasn't saying he wasn't fit enough but he was effectively saying he wasn't match fit enough and um, so as Tim says I can you know if if he's just because this is the second time he hasn't played him as a starter he's brought him off the bench and he looks sharp but that's for 30 minutes at a time and I think you know let's assume we're gonna Roger the manager here over a bunch of stuff, but let's assume that maybe he had some reasons for his choices. For me, my guess of what those reasons were is he looked at it and didn't say, he said to himself, I need Giroud for a long season. He's already said that at the start of the summer, that he's very, very concerned about Giroud losing form for long periods of time and that that has screwed him over. And I think he made a very conscious decision uh, in the, the summer, especially after the loss, to uh, weather the storm at the start of the season. We've seen this n- not in one game or one selection. This is consistent right from, from the start of this season. He's determined to weather the storm and give people as much time as he can. And I think we've seen that consi- consistently. Yeah. So now, you know, I think there's some logic there. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's all psychological. Maybe uh, Wenger's fallen out of love with Giroud, but I doubt. So that's my bet on Giroud. Uh, Theo was injured, apparently. and so.
1: Or was he, quote, injured? I suspect he was, quote, injured, but we'll see. Why? I, that's just my suspicion.
3: Okay, my suspicion is he was injured. Uh, and the manager says he was injured, and I don't like to make myself really, really unhappy, so uh, that's, no, that's where fair. I'm going to stick
1: with. I think he'll be in the team this weekend.
3: Yeah, well, they said he had a, a light injury. So this is my why it may have been a reasonable selection of players scenario. Now, it could all be bollocks. So we've we got Giroud, we got Walcott. Chaka. he's shown a reluctance to play so far. Uh, he may have, as Tim mentioned. Here's what I think Arson does with data. He has, he may have some thoughts and concerns, and he looks at the data. And if it confirms it, it kind of reinforces his position. You mean with respect
1: think, to to fitness? Yeah.
3: Okay. And and stuff. Uh, and the one or two people I know who are close to the club and look close to the stats DNA thing say that Wenger has embraced that. And that's kind of how they're kind of quite pleased with how he takes them up on the stats stuff. And uh, that's how he does it. He uses gut and, and, and data. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know enough about it to know that he's got that perfectly sus, but apparently he's not averse to checking gut-checking his, his thoughts and ideas with data. So I'm prepared to believe that. Um, now, on to Chaka. Uh, if he's just not quite up to it yet and Wenger wants him to be a long-term success, a bit like he did. Uh, he, he talked about with kind of with Perez, you know, he wasn't going to rush him back in a second time. He's going to protect him to some degree. Uh, he he, he kind of gave him a bit too much of a bath the first time out Perez. And so he may protect him for a little while and introduce him slowly with Chaka. Chaka was great against Watford in the first half. And in the second half, they could have scored three. They just scored the one. And it was Chaka and Santi. So if he was going to start with Santi and had any concern, I mean, he knows PSG well. He knows how they can move the ball. He knows the kind of pace and speed they had. I suspect he just... It's very clear he has a trust in Coquelin, whether the rest of us like it or not. Now, he may not trust him as a starter, Later on in the season, in this kind of hybrid role, he's got the, what I'd call almost a Roy Keane role at the moment. But he does seem to trust him alongside Cazorla for them to find their balance. And I think he looked at this and said, Chaka just doesn't have the legs yet to protect us alongside Santi against PSG. They don't have the work and understanding and Chaka doesn't have the legs. And that could be wrong, but... That's how I sleep at night why he didn't pick Chaka was I shocked did I go wow did I think we were in for one hell of a ride yes uh do I think Arson's a complete nutter moron probably not he probably had he probably made that calculation even if we would have said fuck it we'll risk Chaka
1: yeah i mean that, uh, and look all of those things are possible i i think it's simpler i think it's a more basic human instinct which is Sometimes when you are having a hard time solving a problem, you go with what worked for you before. And I think the Kazorla cocklin axis in central midfield led us to the top of the table in the first half of last season and seemed to work. And I think that right now he still has a belief that since that's the best we'd been in a while and the closest we'd been to the top in a while, that's the solution that works. And yeah. I think... You know, there's certainly been an adjustment in how we're trying to play. You can definitely see that. Um, but it does beg the question of why buy Shaka, only in the sense that, look, if you want to play the way you've been playing, like this, and you want to stick with Coughlin, then why not buy a guy like N'Golo Conte, for example, who maybe is a more one-for-one kind of replacement slash rotational option with a Francis Coughlin. Shaka and Coughlin have very very little in common and so it, it would seem weird to me if he likes Coughlin and what he brings to the side that his choice the, of a big in the money short midfield, term, though well right right and that's why we'll see we'll see what happens I mean Tim they can, got can I
3: can I add one more thing on Coughlin yeah, very quickly which is two things I've heard Wenger say recently that twigged something with me he talked about in the Southampton game um that they tweaked the positions from the first half to the second half with Santi and Kazorla, which tells you he's working on some kind of balance. It also tells you that he's giving out instructions and they're being followed. And I'm going to make a jump here. I think one of the things he likes about Cochrane is that's one guy on the field who actually feckin listens to what he, you know, he's very tuned in to what Wenger wants him to do, which is the only explanation for why beyond being good at covering, He keeps getting picked. And when he talked about the PSG game, he talked about how in the first half, his frustration was the midfield was playing too far away from the front three. um, And they adjusted that in the second half. And again, I'm making a a little bit of a jump here. But it kind of says to me, he must kind of like the dialogue he has going with his midfield uh, he asked them to do something he thinks they can respond. I think one of the reasons he likes Coquelin is because the guy really listens. He, he may not be the greatest player in the world. He may not actually be Roy Keane. I, in the medium term, I think his usage in this hybrid box-to-box role will be significantly reduced because uh, Wenger won't have the same requirement for him. I don't think he could have matched El Nenny with... Uh, Santi, I think he was too concerned about Chaka and Santi as a pairing, yeah. and he has some level of confidence in Carklan. All right, well, sorry, in Cazorla? yeah, in Carklan.
1: Oh, in Carklan. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the the thing that I see though is is that whatever the reason for picking the specific players we picked, and and Tim, I think this is the point that that we really have to address. I don't know that any different choice of players in midfield would have resulted in a different first half based on the way we're playing, because the one thing we seem to do, and it it makes me want to tear my hair out, and it's been a feature of this team for a while now, um, certainly in some of our heaviest defeats over the last few years, is play a high line, but don't press the ball in midfield. And Mm -hmm. I don't care who it is, what team you're playing, at this level, those players are too good. They're going to pick that ball... Every time to get in behind your back four, so it happened really, really early on, and we were behind one nil. What did you think of the goal they scored and the way we were the way we were giving them the room to get behind us in midfield and with the high line?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was at the moment. I think what you're seeing in a lot of our games is it's it's taking us, with the exception of Watford, it's it's taking us twenty to thirty minutes. To really start playing, because and it seems to me that the players don't really either don't know what they're supposed to do, or it's just a little bit alien to them. Um, And what I'm not sure the camera would have picked up um, on the first goal. I've I've seen like brief highlights, and um, the PSG goal went in down the other end to me. But um, Iwobi does not track at all. Iwobi is stood on the halfway line yeah. when Cavani connects with the cross he doesn't track back at all which in the first 45 seconds for a 20 year old I, I think is quite poor. Yeah, I, th- I thought he had a good game overall other than that but I think that's because you know, like I was saying earlier the two wide players were left with this real quandary where we're going to be outnumbered in midfield and Alexis is going to vacate the number nine role all the time so I don't think I think it took a little while for either of them to work out whether they were meant to be supplementing the midfield or the attack or both. Um, and you know I, I think both both of those players struggled with that in the first half and that you know that was that was a real sucker punch to concede that in the first forty two seconds. and then whatever about the team selection, um even if the team selection had been absolutely perfect nail on the head, if you concede after forty two seconds, you're going to have a rough 10 to 15 minutes after that. That's That just tends to be the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, as to your point about the pressing and the not pressing and, um, you know, I do my usual plug here. I've written about that this week. Um, it, it strikes me that I can't work out whether Arsenal are supposed to be a pressing team or not because sometimes they do it and sometimes they don't. And it doesn't strike me that it's a kind of well, you can't press for 90 minutes, so you've got to choose your moment. Um, you know, you watch it's Alexis... it's not
1: coordinated when it happens. It happens in exactly. isolation. Like like Kako exactly. press up the pitch and, and press somebody, and no one else will, and if they get past yeah. that, it's it's just free run.
4: Exactly, and you've, you've only got to look at Alexis. You see him constantly, you know, he goes to press and he waves everyone forward, and half the time they don't bother, and then he turns around and he looks really frustrated, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, who's going rogue here? Is it Alexis? Is it his teammates who aren't following him? Or is it, as I suspect, there's just not really much instruction? Um, and because of Wenger's reliance on self determination, um, you know, the, the players kind of, it's left up to them. And, and I don't think you can really do that with a pressing tactic, whether you like it or not. It has to be choreographed. It has to be. Instructed, you have the players have to be told when to do it because if they, like you say, if they're going to do it, they all have to be on the same page. And Especially you if rely. you play a
1: high line. Especially. Exactly.
4: Then. <laughs> exactly. And if you're relying on self determinate, you can't do that. And you know you've got um, Mustafi in there, who's completely new to this team, barely trained with them before the Southampton game, um, and you know, and you're, you're exposing him to that as well. And it's it's just. And and also against PSG, this I mean this is where actually changing the goalkeeper does potentially have an effect. It, it worked out for us. it's had a decent game overall, more than a decent game overall. But actually, you're you're exposing your new defender even more by throwing in a new goalkeeper with him, and it just seems like we're complicating things a little bit. And um, but I, I just wonder if you know, we've got this uneasy coexistence between Wenger wanting players to work things out for themselves. But actually, if you want to play a bit of a pressing game, you can't do that. You, you do have to, you know, you do have to drill them to do that. And, you know, a manager like Guardiola has, has come along and proved that you can play expressive football and be well drilled and organised and structured. And actually, Guardiola is incredibly strict about that kind of thing. And I'm not saying, you know, Wenger has to become Guardiola because he's one of the best around. But I just wonder if managers like him and, you know, Mourinho have have kind of football's evolved into a space now where that self-determination thing at the very, very top level doesn't really work um, anymore. Or at least it it's limited. It's got a ceiling. To it, and I don't know. It just it just looks to me like we spend the first twenty five minutes of every game trying to work out figure out,
1: out what, what how we're gonna going to answer to what it. their coordinate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I mean I think so. So they get that early goal though, Tim, and then and then they had a host of other chances. Um, mm. I mean Cavani had a hat trick of misses. It, it could have been a hiding. The XG stats at the end of the game were a hiding. Um, yep. Not that that matters. I mean, we got we still get to have the point. Um, but to me, you know, it is really confusing. I think when when we used Cox, Zorla or whatever Santi and Cock in the past successfully, Cocklin just screened the back for he kept that area just you know ahead of our final third covered. And while no one man can cover all that ground, um, it at least became the platform by which the players ahead of him would try to build up and and create attacks. Mm-hmm. And now as he's playing more box-to-box, I think the logic behind it is he gets up the pitch and he can win the ball, but there's two problems with that. First of all, if he doesn't win the ball, then we're really totally exposed. Because um, yeah. there's just tons, acres of space behind him, especially if you're going to play with guys like Awobi and Oxlade-Chamberlain who aren't going to cover for their fullbacks, who aren't great at tracking back and being aware defensively. And I think you go even further... To, to make matters worse is if he does win the ball back and we've seen this in previous games already this season it can lead to really good goal opportunities there was one I can't quite remember where he, he, he pressed he won the ball it fell to a Wobe, a Wobbe played a through ball to the right anyone remember the goal I'm talking about was it against Liverpool was it the opening goal against Liverpool I don't Yes,
4: know. yes, it was. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: good. I'm not going crazy. But but when it does what we've seen also is sometimes he will win the ball in that advanced position, but he's not a good enough distributor to do much with it and winds up, you know, often not creating enough out of that that ball winning situation. It's an interesting conundrum. I, I think you know, a lot of attention is on him right now, but I also think it's interesting that the manager is is picking players like a and Oxlade Chamberlain. First of all, you know your fullbacks are going to be exposed in that situation, and poor Nacho Monreal was on an island defending by himself most of the night. Um, Paul, as far as the the way that first half went, and much of the game really, where they were able to get behind us time and time again, do you attribute that more to those wide forwards not helping back and not being aware of, of defending as a team, or do you really think it's the dynamic in midfield?
3: Uh, one thing I'd throw in is what uh, an interesting quirk to the the Cockalan development has been Santi, uh, defensively this this year, I think has been eye catching in terms of covering, Tra- tracking tackling, back. tackling yeah. tracking back, but, but not just like positionally. I mean, he's he's discovered kind of like Arteta. I did a as Tim would say, I did a piece a while ago. Um, I think it was at the start of last season, talking about uh, Santi becoming the new Arteta. And what what I think the Coquelin setup is doing for Santi at the moment, by him playing a little bit more, is Santi Santi's staying deep longer. And just, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, I thought Santi had a poor game uh, on the first pass. Uh, on Tuesday night, when I watched it again, I actually thought, thought he was the player I I got the most wrong. His distri- he, I think he was at 90% distribution despite all that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the one player who was really stringing it together, what's, what this new rebalancing has done has allowed Sandy to be the deep-lying player Whereas I think you might say a year or two ago he'd drop back, do a distribution, and then head upfield, and Cockerlan would sit. So they've kind, it's not just about Cockerlan pushing forward. It has allowed Santee to hang back, and his average position is now significantly behind Cox. Um, why did we have all that trouble? Um, I, I don't think we should underestimate. Uh, I underestimated PSG because their form associate. But they're, they're really good uh, Unai Emery's a very good manager. They came out with the whole full press thing. I don't think it was unreasonable that we should have had to ride a storm for the first 15 20 minutes. I mean we at looked, we looked at a level
1: below them that first half like we, d- we looked a, le- sure. a solid competitive level below them
3: well 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 so for, for a start yeah I mean I, and I wouldn't be surprised that we were knocked back and rocked a bit, and we hung on a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's a quality team with a quality manager. We got the issue was conceding that goal in 44 seconds. I think we were beyond rocked at that stage, but it, it, they had two, maybe three really good opportunities in that first half, and they certainly showed the capability to slice us open a bunch of times. But actually, we started to come into the game, we just didn't we didn't do that much with what we had in the final third. Had we had a proper center forward, had Ox not spilled the ball under pressure every time, had, you know, I thought Awobi was okay in the first half. Had we had a proper center forward, we would have given them actually a pretty decent game. We had enough possession. We had enough presence in the final third. You know, we had, you know, four or five corners. We had... Monreal crossing into the box. We had Ox heading back into the box. The problem was everybody was five foot seven and below. If we'd had a better presence in the final third, I don't think our performance in the rest of the field looks quite as bad. We would have held on to the ball better. It would have been a more, I mean, we were very much in the game, even if their attacks were looked the more dangerous and they were better at slicing this open. We just needed a better final third. We still wouldn't have been I mean, been I think they could then. say the
1: same, though, right? I mean, if you're going to say we needed a better final third, if they convert even half of their clear chances, it's it's a three-goal game at halftime.
3: Certainly. I think they should have been 2-0 up at halftime. I mean, you're not, You not. You, there aren't that many teams that convert all their goals. No, no, no. I,
1: I get it. But but all I was saying is you're saying if we had better final third play, we'd give them a, a game. I think yeah, you, but, you yeah, then but my have idea to grant...
3: Of- my idea of final third is, like, good balls into the box.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I will agree with you on this point, Paul. We had the ball in at the top of their final third with numerical advantages enough times to trouble them and didn't. And I think, unfortunately, yeah. you have to probably point—
3: probably a 60-40 thing, even though it feels like it was 80-20.
1: Well, because the clearest chances came to them. And part of the reason for that is when we had the opportunity to create clear chances, we botched it. And I think— Tim,
3: yeah. And we spilled the ball straight back to them. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to get you and Tim's view on the centre-back pairing. I mean, it, to me, there were three options. They kind of looked like they had clown shoes at, on at times in terms of their understanding. Maybe it was the pressure from our... Uh, been transmitted to them from our midfield and attack, not holding the ball. But I, I you, know, you look at almost every situation... I mean, there were two or three thing, uh, uh, situations where the ball was just pinging off one, bouncing off the other. Koscielny, uh intercepted it, but actually ended up playing it into the path of, I guess, Cavani. Uh You know, the one bounced off Mustafi's head. Uh, Koscielny knocks it back right into the zone where they, you know, there were pr- at least th- uh, the first goal in terms of Mustafi and his positioning. You could find maybe four situations where... The centre-backs were holding the knife. I don't know who put the knife in their hand.
1: Yeah, I, I would say this about the centre-backs. It's impossible to evaluate your centre-backs when you have them playing 30 yards from goal with nobody in midfield stopping the balls in and nobody covering back for the full-backs. Um, yeah. You know, you look at the 6-0 at Chelsea, the, the 6-3 at City, the, what was it, 5-1 at Liverpool? Um, okay. those the Those games a PSG. What, what, right, but I'm saying th- those games had similar similar game flow to this in the sense that there were plenty of attacks where the center backs were trying to cover acres of space or defend in space with no support, with balls going in behind. You know, and the thing I'll say about Cavani, everybody's saying he's terrible. I think Cavani's movement and and his intelligence yeah. in that respect superb. Was, was superb. Um, Tim... You know, we're not in the business of scapegoating, or we shouldn't be anyway. Sometimes we wind up in that business. But I think one of the things that I've always admired about Arson, when Arson speaks on football, he always speaks very intelligently. And one of the things that he has always said that makes football such a wonderful thing is that it's a meritocracy. Um, and he loves that about football. And I, I think it's hard for me to see any meritocracy that would see Oxley chamberlain continuing to keep his place. And I don't mean that as a sick burn, dude. I just mean he hasn't played well enough to earn that starting role, in my opinion. And he was pretty shocking in this game. And the, and the numbers bear that out. I mean, from a passing standpoint, he passed. He completed 57.9% of his passes. He uh, turned the ball over Well, he was dispossessed twice and had four unsuccessful touches. He had no shots on target, one off target. He played one key pass. He had no dribbles for a player who, for whom that is a feature of his game and what makes him special. Um, uh, Coughlin, by the way, no tackles in the game, which I thought was interesting. But so in your mind, is this a case of Arsene Wenger just deciding if I keep picking Ox, that special talent will emerge eventually, or is there something else at work here?
4: Um, I, think it's, I think there's a couple of things at work here. Um, first of all, and I think as the season goes on, lots of, more people are going to join my bandwagon. I don't think Arsenal's wide options are that great. Um, no, we to were be all honest. crying I out for
1: another forward. Uh, we wanted two up front this summer.
4: Right, yeah, sure. yeah. And I think really in the kind of last weeks of the transfer window, you know, you get those two signings at the end and everyone goes, well, hey, we've got signings. And um, I think a lot of people lose sight of what signings are actually for. And it's not for that nice feeling of gratification or a shiny new toy. It's about improving your squad. Um, and I said the same the summer we signed Ozil, um, to be honest. I thought, yeah, that's obviously that's an incredible signing that solves the need. But actually, there was a lot we didn't do that summer that people kind of forgot about in the Ozil fever. Um, and I think something similar has happened here because chronology is important in a transfer window. And when you sign two relatively big players towards the end, People feel that ah oh, new signing glow, um, but um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is very close to the starting eleven, and the reason for that is because we don't actually have brilliant wide options. Um, Alexis, yeah, brilliant wide option, absolutely bonafide starting eleven superstar, 20-25 goals a season, great. The other wide position. Um, it's quite open, isn't it? How many players in our team can realistically play on the left wing? Alexis, Iwobi, Perez. then Chamberlain, maybe Perez. I I tend to think if he's played wide at all, it will be on the right. But we don't actually have that many options on the left. Um, you know, I think Iwobi and Chamberlain are, are very very close to starting eleven players. They're probably like starting fifteen. I'd say, because we don't have that many players that can play on the left-hand side of the attack. So um, a lot of it is just because he doesn't have... And when you've got, like, Walcott injured or not injured or whatever, but Walcott not available for Tuesday night, that does push Chamberlain right up the pecking order because those are the wide options we have. So I think there's a bit of that. Um, And I think come January, um, the the choruses... Will grow a little bit louder for us to actually. Um, and unless, you know, Chamberlain or Walcott really, really put some form together, I think there'll be a bit of a, a cry for for us to add a wide player. I also think with Chamberlain there might be something else to it in that, um, you know, he's obviously his confidence is at rock bottom, his form's in the toilet, um, and you know he's had this with young players before. He had it with Ramsey, and he played him through it. Um, And in the end, he was right to do that. Um, He ended up getting the best out of him. Uh, Whether he's got the best out of him since, he has subsequently,
1: I'd say, it's come back the other direction.
4: (laughs) (laughs) He's become probably more towards average, whereas he was terrible um, for a little while. A a bit like Chamberlain is veering towards terrible territory. But the only other thing I can think of is the manager's resolved. Look, I've got him for the season now. He's not going anywhere. It's September we've got eight whole months you know I might as well try and get him out of the toilet quite frankly particularly when there's not that many other options and you're trying to maybe protect a young player like Iwobi as well we don't want him playing every game so I think Chamberlain will get a lot of football um, actually this year and you know if by January Chamberlain's form is still circling the U-bend then he might look to phase him out and think right I've got to look at my options in the market. I need to sign someone. Whether that happen in January or the end of the season, I don't know. But um, but I, I figure it's 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 for two reasons. It's because we don't have an awful lot of other choice when you when you look at the squad. I mean, which wide players were on the bench on Tuesday? Maybe Lucas.
1: No, no, and,
4: and yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Your I mean,
1: so. your only really top quality wide player who can play on the left is. Alexis. Alexis. Yeah.
3: yeah. And, but and, I think uh, Perez used to start from the left before he was a striker. That that was his wing position, if I remember right.
4: He did. He did. And ben he's he's, a has left, but... he's going to use him. He sees him principally as a with sure. change. Um, but, yeah, also, he's, he's for want of a better phrase, he's kind of stuck with him. Um, in more ways than one, actually, he's stuck with him.
1: Yeah, um, and, he's kept... and he's stuck because it's not working. <laughs> So he's he's got like the whole season,
4: and you know he hasn't got many other options. So he's thinking, right? I'll keep playing him. I'll keep trying to pick his form up, um, and we'll see where we are in a couple of months. I will say slightly in his defence, like I said earlier, I think it was almost an impossible role for Awobi and Alexis to play. uh, Sorry, and Chamberlain to play. Awobi really picked up. Once we brought Sharoud on and moved Alexis because I think Iwobi and Alexis on each flank is a nice balance. And with, exi- with existing options, that would be my first choice. Um, and with all due respect to Alex Iwobi, who I think is a brilliant prospect, I've been saying this all summer I think he's a starting 11 player, which, you know, I don't necessarily think he should be. No, uh, no way. I like <laughs> him and think he will develop. he's in my first choice 11 and that tells you what our options are like on that on that flank Um, but it was it was a pretty thankless task for Chamberlain to be asked well well I don't know what he was asked um, but it kind of looks like he was supposed to support the midfield and a centre forward that likes to vacate the centre forward spot a lot and got caught between two stalls and and really ended up doing neither particularly well.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think one of the other problems we're, we're running into as a result of who we're playing and who we're picking, and you know the way we're playing with Coughlin, for example, is Ozil is really struggling um, by his standards, by his lofty standards, and it's really yeah. interesting. You want to see something that I think sums up, and and I do not understand statistics and visualizations and things like that as well as some people who are even, you know, listening to this pod, let alone on this pod, um, but. If you go to, I'm on Who's Scored right now, but anywhere where you can see heat maps and you click on Ozil's heat map and Coughlin's heat map and Alexis's heat map, they pretty much, their their hottest zones are directly standing on top of each other. Like if you could represent that heat map with three human beings, they'd be stacked on top of each other's heads. And I just think, Coughlin's pushing forward and coming into those spaces that uh, that Ozil likes to find, those little pockets of space, and Alexis is dropping deeper into those spaces, and Ozil's trying to find somewhere to be, and when he's at his best, and we saw it against Watford where it was so good, the ability to when when Shaka or Cazorla had the ball a little deeper in midfield, and Ozil can occupy those half spaces either side of the center of the pitch, just ahead of the final third, collect and distribute, collect and distribute, and and he's so deadly doing that. And what we've done is we've created this situation where Cokland's rampaging up the pitch to to, tra- to to close down, and Alexis is dropping to receive the ball, and suddenly there is no one for Ozil to receive the ball from, and no, nowhere for for him to move to and i think you know he can he can excel in two roles one if we sit a little deeper and counterattack because he's just fantastic distributing on the counter or two if we play possession and he can find pockets of space just outside the final third we're not really doing either um, and i just think that the spaces that the players are occupying is is kind of squeezing him out of out of being at his best the whole thing looks a little bit like a mess at the moment, and and you know I I don't think you can just say it's down to the players because to Paul's point, you have to believe the players are being picked because they're following the instructions they're being given. Um, but it's it's the the thing it's doing most of all is it's getting the worst out of Ozil and Sanchez, and anything we're going to achieve this season at all, if we're going to achieve anything, is going to come from. Ozil and Sanchez because there are two best players by a distance um, the the second half was a little bit better I, I mean they still had a mountain of opportunities um, and, and outplayed us solidly but we played ourselves into the game and we created some decent chances ourselves I thought the goal was pretty special that was an example of Ozil finally finding some of that space um, it happened to be out on the wing his disguised ball to Uwobi was sensational his first time hit was great um, and it falls to Alexis who finishes. And at that point, it looked like really anything could happen, um, literally, because the game was so helter skelter. But Giroud came on and made an impact of sorts. Paul, what is wrong with Olivier Giroud? Just like uh, as as a person, what, what okay, is wrong? So, what is wrong with okay. him? Okay.
3: <laughs> so you you told me all the French people had stopped listening, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: Um, I'm married so this, to a French person. This, okay, Th-
1: this is the fault of the fans who booed him, I, presumably?
3: No, no. well, it's his fault. Um, absolutely his fault. I mean, why he thought PSG fans wouldn't boo him, I have no idea. I mean, he, he played for He's the opposing center forward, yeah. <laughs> he is the opposing center forward. He did they play for Montpellier when they won
1: a title, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and if they can find a way to get under your skin, they will. I mean, doesn't he, isn't that what people do? Isn't that what trash talking is to begin with? I
1: mean, to be fair, I think you can make a very strong argument that the booing is tied to national team issues, but.
3: Sure, but he's got to expect, you know, that's called trash talking, right? Yep. Find the guy's weakest point. You know, I don't know what those mean PSG players might have said to him. Probably plenty, too. The way he was going on, probably the referee was trash-talking him, too, because he seemed to be the guy he had the biggest problem with. I mean, it just makes no fucking sense. He had a a bit of a meltdown, which tells you... uh, And he only had to stay on the pitch for, like, whatever it was, 25 minutes. So he just had to keep his cool for about 25 minutes. And within a few minutes... You could see he was already fucking. It, it was was it Olympiakos? He got sent off again. I mean, it was it, it, it was very much the same mentality. After about five minutes, it was weird. I mean, he was just you, you were looking at him, thinking, "What the fuck are you doing? Why are you getting stuck?" Time and time again, showing your frustration to the referee. Um, now, I, I, I I'm open to believe that the final one. Maybe he wasn't a yellow card. I don't know. But he still seemed to give the referee a bit of shit. And it had been building so long that, you know, he was looking for trouble. Um, so there's no, de- I mean, there's no defending him. It was absolute fucking stupidity. Even if the the second yellow uh, wasn't a yellow, there's no defending the stupidity of of him that put himself into that situation, that had the... The referee rubbed so far the wrong way. He decided to send off a player for an incident that he didn't see. Now maybe the guy on the the uh, the linesman made the call on Giroud, and maybe he didn't quite see it right. Or maybe, you know, the stuff we don't hear mm-hmm. was Giroud fucking losing his rag with the linesman and the referee to the point where the referee says, "That's enough of
1: this shit." Yeah,
3: off my pitch.
1: Yeah, I- there's
3: no defending it. I, th- I thought. I, ironically, though, I mean, we when you say tongue in cheek that you know that was his contribution. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but we, as I think you said earlier, I mean, we were a lot better when he came on when we played with an not, actual su- centre forward.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. the problem, though, right? I mean, like yeah. the, the the thing about Olivier Giroud that's so difficult about his mindset is like it's become pretty clear that we need him on the pitch right now. Um. Yeah and something is just not not right either between him and the yeah. manager him and the the club or just him personally because we need we need a center forward the alexis thing isn't working
3: yeah well i mean to be fair he got a lot of shit for the final and i you, you know the the simplest theory is that what the manager told us is true which is physically and mentally it took a lot out of him, and it's still taking a lot out of him. That's the simplest explanation, because I don't buy the fact that Wenger's gone off Giroud. He's always fucking given him uh, his chance way more than many people.
1: Well, if he hasn't gone off Oxlade-Chamberlain yet, <laughs> I think Giroud's yeah. got time. Well, uh, well, yeah,
3: so uh, so my very strong feeling is that's the issue. I think... so. You know, my arc of the game would have been we didn't concede that stupid goal early on. We kind of hung in on the first half, uh, didn't get so rattled. We were kind of in the game well enough and maybe they got one goal on us in the first half. And by the second half, and by the way, all of this is playing with a a proper front three with, uh, you know, Giroud and Walcott or Giroud and, uh, you know, Ramsey or somebody in that front three that makes us a balanced front three or Giroud and Awobi playing from the right or something that made us a fairly balanced front three. You know, we might've been down a, fr- a goal in the first half and earned the right to a draw in the second half. Unlike this game where we just they pretty much annihilated in the first half. Had we had a proper center forward and a reasonable front three, you know, we've seen those games before against big teams where we earned a win, Yeah. you know, against a Bayern or a Barcelona, or uh, we earned a result. We could have earned a result in this. It's still, tactically, it's not brilliant, but
1: it can work. Yeah, I mean, and, and look, uh, Tim, I'll let you address this really quickly, because there are going to be a lot of people screaming at the podcast saying um, the sending off was harsh, that Giroud didn't do anything wrong Uh, for the second yellow but I think you and I are the same mind here and I think Paul you are as well that that he was being aggressive and petulant and there were a couple other sort of rough challenges and lunges along the way it looked like he it looked like he was heading that direction right
4: yeah absolutely I actually don't think it was a harsh sending off because um what I think he was sent off for was Descent. I don't think it mm. was the the little... You know, there were, there was like a little bump on, I think, Marquinhos. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, he did that to be a little bit sly and snide, and that's fine. I, I don't really mind that so much. Maybe not when you're on a yellow card and you've been warned, and you've been warned about your challenges, and you've been warned about Descent. And um, lots of people, when I tweeted about this, you know, showed me the vine... Um, of descending off and you know from that little six second clip didn't look like a lot granted but I don't know if the TV camera picked this up, while that was that altercation was going on the game continued the referee didn't stop it until both players ran over to the linesman and started yelling at him and if you're on a booking and a warning and then you show dissent, particularly I know it's not necessarily a Champions League thing this crackdown on dissent but you know that that's the climate that premier league players are operating in at the moment in their domestic league and they have to be extra careful about it and it was just completely brainless and the second the incident unfolded i mean i was just yelling just walk away just walk away this is of no benefit to us yeah this is not you know I'd like Giroud to bully defenders more, but with his physique, not with these silly, petulant arguments off the ball that don't serve any purpose for us. Um, and actually what it was, my, my reading of what the second yellow card was for was that the ref was kind of okay to let them have a little kind of pushing and shoving match and whatnot. But actually he blew his whistle very sharply the second that both players started yelling at the linesman. Yep. And uh, he sent both of them off.
3: Um, and is, isn't the classic thing in that situation that the referee comes back to a flared up situation, just gives both players a yellow card? That's the fucking yeah. easy decision if you're not in inter- turn. You know these these guys are taking the mickey, acting the maggots, so you yeah. whip yeah, out the you, old you yellow gi-
1: card. You give the referee a reason to make a a call at all, right? I mean, if you just yeah. walk away from it and decompress the whole situation, the referee gets the option to just let it go. But by and ratcheting it up, it. he he forces him into a decision.
3: Because it was yeah. almost like the referee, as as Tim said, had looked away. I think they were called back by the linesman.
4: Yeah, I think so. Let's put it this way: they
1: this was not got, as got harsh as getting getting sent off for kicking the ball at the goal one second after the whistle's blown. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and yeah. you know, for for Giroud, he he should have learned this lesson because he was sent off harshly in Zagreb. I think that was a harsh red card. But again, it was because he'd been chipping at the ref the whole game. And that second yellow he got was pathetic. But he wasn't necessarily booked for that foul. It's because he made an enemy of the referee. And you don't want to make an enemy of the referee. Or at least once you get to that line, you appreciate, right, I'm right on the line now. And at least for 10 minutes, I've got to keep a low profile. And, you know, I, I, could, I could have forgiven Giroud for, you know, getting sent off in some way that, benefited the team or if you know he was contesting a ball in the air in the penalty area and there was a bit of pushing and shoving this was nothing this was a tackle on the halfway line he then got up I think it was uh, Marquinhos's nose by kind of you know giving a little shoulder off the ball and then he started yelling at the linesman and you just think you've already been booked and warned several times it just seemed like he was asking for it and um you know I he got I, it. I, I, I was yeah, I think quite strongly that the manager should punish him. Um, and you know, however these internal things are dealt with, I'm, I'm not convinced they are really. But um, I'd, I'd certainly find him a week's wages for that. Well, not least because PSG then got a corner in the 94th minute, which they nearly the, scored. They from. almost
1: scored from where he he would have actually been a very important part of defending. Exactly. That corner. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it, it's going to surprise both of you, but he's not he's not one of my favorites. So. You know, I, I I guess I'll just stay out of it. But, you know, it, it strikes me as interesting, too. I just think we look right now like a team that doesn't n- know what kind of football it wants to play. Um, you know, and I read an article recently saying that basically Wenger sides are sort of coordinated improvisation. And that may be the case, but it seems pretty clear to me that he wants – his more ball-playing midfielder, in Cazorla in this case, to sit a little deeper and collect the ball off the back and distribute. And he wants his more pit-bullish, tigerish tackling midfielder to go up the pitch and try to to win the ball back and and press and win tackles. During the buildup, there is absolutely no one to distribute to. And if they get the ball off our midfielders, absolutely no one protecting the back four. So whatever the system is right now, it's not really working. The only thing I wonder is, Maybe Arsene sees Shaka's role as being the heir apparent to the partnership with Ramsey in midfield, and that he doesn't think he's a fit with Kazorla for whatever reason, um, because he doesn't want Shaka to be the, the midfielder who goes up the pitch. Uh, he wants Ramsey to be that guy, and Kazorla can't be that guy. So, for whatever it is, maybe Wenger sees the midfield as partnerships, and he sees the Coklin Kazorla midfield as a partnership, and Ramsey shaka as a partnership and ramsey's just not available yet um you know maybe that's what the future is for the midfield going forward but i guess there will be plenty of time to find that out um final thoughts i mean it was a dire night but we did get a point um you know assuming we right the ship this could be the point that leads us to topping the group for the first time in ages you know unless we find a way to trip over ourselves and not do it but i just wanted to ask both of you guys this and sort of leave it on this paul we've now the sample set is probably big enough now to, to start drawing some conclusions on how things look, and I don't think you'd have to feel very encouraged so far. How are you feeling now, having seen you know an, enough of the team? I mean, granted, we're still betting in. We're still getting, you know, Mustafi just came in, and Perez has played part of one game, and we haven't really seen Ramsey much, or Shaka for that matter, for reasons that remain to be seen. But what are your feelings going forward based on what you've seen so far?
3: Uh, too early to say. Okay. I mean, we're just missing that front three. I mean, how do you judge us against PSG with that front three? The previous game.
1: Well, well he picked him.
3: <laughs> but no options. I know you have conspiracy theories on no, no, Walcott's knee. Well, and, no, not even that. I, I, he think
1: he, I think he could have picked Giroud or Perez. I mean, he, he could have picked him. Uh, you know. No, he couldn't.
3: Well, I mean, he's, 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 he's told us, he's told us, he's told us he's not fit. Darned. So now you cannot believe him. That's OK. But if I take him at his word. I mean, the, the player disagrees. Actions, <laughs> no, he doesn't disagree. Yeah, he, he said, said I'm not
1: match fit because the manager won't pick me enough.
3: <laughs> hasn't played me enough. And the manager explained why he hadn't been played before that. And I don't think we disagree. He wasn't fit when he wasn't being played. And he might be. Yeah. Fi- mm-hmm. yeah. And now he hasn't. The reality is, catch twenty two. He hasn't played enough. All right, and we look, saw, we're off the ramps. I get your point. At,
1: yeah, I, I get so, your point. So, so you're saying too a early lot of to say. Choice. Okay.
3: Too early to ch- say. The one thing I would say, so I I wouldn't be that worried, unless I turned on the TV and watched Manchester City's last two games. Then yeah. I'd be fucking worried.
1: Yeah. I mean, it looks like Pep's got his his stuff Fuck. working. Well, I mean, already. I had a theory
3: that, hey, maybe it was just with that 11, but that was the second time I watched them, whenever it was, last night, that was quite a different 11, quite a different format.
1: Well, and, and, and look, Chelsea's con- against- Conte's Chelsea, you know, I, I know that they didn't get the win at the weekend, but yeah. if you watch that game, it could have been 35 to nothing. I mean, they, yeah. they look like they could be pretty good. Um, so everybody
3: seems up and running. I mean, even Manchester United in that second half so against So why aren't City. we?
1: So why aren't we, Paul? If, if everybody has gotten off you know, to a relatively quick start and looks pretty coordinated so far, why is it that you know we all have the same amount of prep and we're talking about big clubs who have international players, why have we had such a stuttering start?
3: I, I think our big weaknesses are, are, we always seem to have runs in the same spot and at the moment our front three or front, any two of the front three at the moment seems to be where we have our bigger challenge. We mm. have a midfield not to everybody's liking. You know, I, I didn't agree with your assessment on either Santi or Cockland, but people have heard that debate before. And Wenger is obviously OK with those two as a midfield for the moment. I think we have an OK defence. I think we have an OK midfield, at least for now, to scramble this section of the season. Uh, it's To me, it's, it's our front line where we're missing. You know, Perez isn't ready. Giroud isn't ready. Uh Walcott took a knock for one game. Um, uh, Ox's shit. <laughs> uh, that, that front line's the one where I think that that I think is holding us back from, from doing the business at the moment. Uh, hopefully, Jack is going to kick in very soon and we'll see if we have an upgrade in midfield. But it's kind of scary when you look over at City. Uh, I agree with you on Chelsea and maybe close behind united are about to kick in.
1: All right, Tim, so what about you? I mean, I, I think I think you could put this in three issues. I think one, we have an issue with how we want to set up and play which needs to be resolved. It doesn't seem that we have found the system yet. I think two, I completely agree with Paul that it looks like we may be short goals, which is depressing because we thought maybe we were short goals to begin with. And I only have two things. So it's those two things. I mean, is is that kind of how you see it yourself? Yeah,
4: yeah, a little bit. I think, you know, we have got, so I, I, I thought it was quite an interesting point you made actually about Kazola, Kakalam being kind of like a shadow, shall we say, for, for Jaco and Ramsey. And, and I did think to myself earlier, I just didn't want to bring it back to the Coquelin discussion, a penny for the thoughts of Aaron Ramsey, who kind of for the last 18 months or so has been asked to play this role that, Possibly does or or sorry, asked to play in a team that doesn't really get the best out of him. Now watching Francis Coquelin play a box to box role and getting forward and supporting the striker, um, I imagine that's quite frustrating for Aaron Ramsey at the moment. Um, so, so maybe you're right. Maybe this is just like the blueprint for for when Ramsey comes back and Jacker comes back into the team. I, I, I not that impressed with what I've seen though far, so far this season. The only thing I'd say is that um, there is always a danger of peaking too early in a season. I've seen Arsenal... Well, we've avoided that. Loads
1: of <laughs> High five. Captain Scrooge. <laughs> <Well>, indeed.
4: <laughs> indeed. Didn't, didn't Man City win their first five games last season? Um, I think they did. And, albeit, they've got a much, much better manager now. And, I you know, I, I think they've a very very good shot winning the title but nevertheless I think basically in August and September when your players are coming back and they've all come back at different stages of preseason particularly in a tournament year it's just about getting the points on the board and I think the same goes for April May I think where you're looking for cohesion and good football and joined up thinking or at least being able to see joined up thinking is kind of October to March, that's the period where you want to see the performances. Yep. The first two months and the last two months of the season, you just want the results while and, and everything else will sort itself out later. So I think we've the last three games or so, possibly four if you count a half decent away point at Leicester, we kind of got that going for us a little bit. And I tend to think as a few more players come back. There's a few more players play together, they get used to each other a bit more, whether or not the manager sorts it out, um, I think there is an element to which the players will be able to sort it out amongst themselves to some degree, hopefully to a very high level, but that remains to be seen. So I'm, I'm relatively hopeful that it will get better. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not hugely impressed with what I've seen so far, and there have been a few team selections which have caused me to scratch my head. But you know, if if, if we beat Hull on Saturday, you know, we're onto a really good thing. I, I think the Chelsea game is the marker that would that will tell you where Arsenal are um, at the moment. That, that will really tell you where Arsenal are and what we're looking at. I think for the season.
1: Yeah, I I mean, the funny thing about getting a result is it's always a good thing. I'm not one of these, oh, I wish we would lose so people could see. Um, But the only downside to getting that point against PSG is it would be easy to write the game off and be like, yeah, we came away with something. If we continue to play the way we did against PSG, teams will put us to the sword. Um, We won't get away with it every time. So I hope they take a good hard look at that game film and say, gosh, you know, here's where we were exposed, here's what wasn't working, and, and address it. Um, I also find it interesting, you know, you made the point, Tim, that our left wing options are limited. And, you know, I, I do think, you know, granted, Joel Campbell never really played on the left and, and Wilshire's not really a left winger. Or whatever, but we we did send some players out who, at least conceivably, may have had value this season. Um, yeah. And I wonder if we did it in their best interest but not in ours. Um, The other thing I would say about Shaka is, you know, look, you know when Arsene Wenger loves a player because he will play them all the damn time. There are players like I remember there are like League Cup games like, well, surely he'll rest him this game and he wouldn't rest him then. You know, like when he loves a player, he loves watching him play and he just he he resists resting him. Um, Kazola. When does Kazola ever sit on the bench? Never, never. And, And you can go back to players like Cesc Fabregas who'd be like, you know, one minute away from shredding a hamstring and he'd throw him out there. He played him against Barcelona with a broken leg. Um, Van Persie was another one. But, I mean, and those were guys who had injury track records. But it's just, it's interesting because I'm not ready to say there's something weird going on with Shaka, but did you ever think would Good. Live, no, it's too early, but did you ever think you'd live to see the day that he bought a guy for 35 million pounds Um, and, I mean, doesn't want to use him. Just flat doesn't use him. Um I mean, it it may be nothing, but it's close enough to being something to be curious, uh, especially if you believe the rumor that when he started against Watford, Cocklin had a knock um, and was originally designated to start. Because um, I remember that day when the lineups were coming out, everyone said Cochran was starting. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's... Uh, Let's keep our fingers crossed that we get on track, and you know, or or stay on track. However, you want to look at it against Hull this weekend. And more than anything, I think what we need to start to do now is is find the formula. You know, figure out what's Lucas's role, what's Shaka's role, what you know, if any, what's who are the players who are going to be are relied upon eleven when we need three points, and what positions are they going to play and style. And you know, other than that, we've got everything figured out. Okay, enough of that. Anyway. Uh, that's the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast for you. Please give us five stars on iTunes and then talk nasty shit about us on social media. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Paul is on Twitter at in my pants Paul, as always, it is a delight to speak to you about Arsenal. Woohoo! Woohoo! Indeed. Uh, and Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. You can hear him uh, on all kinds of podcasts and read him on all kinds of blogs. So please do so. Tim, a uh, pleasure to have you back. My pleasure. And, gentlemen, I look forward to uh, speaking with you after the Hall match, which I believe is Saturday, correct? Yeah. Play on Saturday this weekend? Great. That's good news. All right. Uh, until then, enjoy watching Brazilian football, Tim, and we will be back at the weekend. Cheers.